Welcome to Episode 5 of Women's World Cup Home Companion on Backheel.com. I'm Jonathan Tannenwald from Philly.com, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and Daily News. And this particular episode of the show was a very special one for me because we're in Montreal tonight getting ready for the semifinal matchup, the Clash of the Titans between the United States and Germany. And I have the real privilege of bringing together three of my great friends uh, in soccer in North America that I've gotten to know over the years. They're all based here in the Montreal area. And uh, maybe one or two of them will be familiar to you, maybe not. Um, but you're going to get introduced tonight, I think, to some really good people who know a lot about the game here and beyond. We will start with somebody who I'm pretty sure is familiar to a lot of you because he's on Soccer Morning regularly. He is the host of the Two Solitudes podcast and the Off the Woodworks podcast and the USL Radio podcast and the Five Rings podcast. And uh, there's, what, like five other? How many is it now, Kevin? Kevin Laramie is here with us. Well, how you doing? There's probably too many podcasts, yes, uh, but uh, it's a great pleasure to join you. I've actually been listening to uh, your companion shows, and it's a great companion to the World Cup, and I'm excited for the game tomorrow, excited about the tournament, but most of all, exciting to have uh, a drink and a conversation with you guys. We are recording this the night before, so you'll probably, those of you listening will hear this on Tuesday in the hours before kickoff. Um, you know, I got asked recently by a listener, why call the show a Women's World Cup home companion. And I should probably explain that. Uh, as you all know, we started in Winnipeg, which is dreadfully boring. There's nothing to do. I can say that now that I'm safely far away from there. But Winnipeg, of course, is close to Minnesota. And I used to work in public radio in the U.S. back in the day. And, of course, some of you out there probably know about Garrison Keeler and the show A Prairie Home Companion. So that was the inspiration, being... North of Minnesota, seeing a lot of folks from Minneapolis who were in Winnipeg. That was the, the inspiration for the name of the show. Seated next to Kevin uh, is another good friend of mine, somebody who I've done in the years that I've been coming to Montreal. I think this is the third show that I've done at a bar. And every single time, Pierre Maillot, his Twitter handle is Samba Pete, you should follow him, has been there. And it would not be a show for us tonight without him being there. So, Pierre, thanks, of course, as always, for coming. Thanks, Jonathan. It's always a pleasure to be with you. And our last guest is somebody who I've worked with for a long time. And as with Kevin, is somebody who I get to turn the tables on tonight. Um, some of you out there might remember a podcast that was for a time distributed by Backheel's predecessor, the North American Soccer Network, called Soccer Plus. And it was hosted by Uh, the former radio and television voice of the Montreal Impact and the former Canada columnist for World Soccer Magazine, Philippe Germain. We tried to get the old band back together tonight. Unfortunately, two of the other contributors, Rafael Roxier, who now uh, does the social media for FC Montreal of the USL, and Ivan Delia Victoire, who I believe now works for RDS in uh, media relations. They couldn't be here tonight. Um, but Phil is here, and uh, a lot of us who work in podcasting, uh, have used that old show as a model even to this day. We have brought you out of retirement for the night. And uh, we should mention Phil is working with the local organizing committee here in Montreal uh, with the World Cup. We're not going to get him in any trouble. But we are going to say that we're very glad that you're here. Very glad to be here as well. I, I miss uh, speaking into a mic, so I'm very glad and uh, want to say hi to, uh, to all the listeners. In your defense, you have been speaking into a mic the last couple of days. You're a translator here at the World Cup. Yeah. 
that's my other uh, my that's my bread and butter. I I do translation and interpreting uh, into French. So I was uh, hired by the national organizing committee to do both this venue and in Ottawa as well. Uh, it was it was funny watching you during the press conferences. It's like during the old cone of silence on those game shows from the 1970s in this like cubicle that's all glassed off, so that all I mean it has to be that all you're hearing is what's coming through the microphones. So you can translate that in real time. And if you if you listen to some of the international feeds of the press conferences and stuff like that, you'll hear Phil's voice uh, from some of the things that have been done, which is pretty eerie when you see. Uh the face of José Belanger, and you hear a big voice coming out of her. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to talk about the two semifinal matchups, obviously. The U.S. and Germany on Tuesday night here in Montreal, and then England and Japan in Edmonton on Wednesday. We're going to start by talking about Canada, and they're having gone out of the World Cup at the quarterfinal stage. And I've written a couple of times, Kevin, in the last few days about this. Um, they got a very favorable draw, and I think they knew it. Both the group stage was tough, but certainly in the knockout rounds, the path was there for them to play a semifinal on Canada Day, July the first. I hope I can say that in this town and, and, and be all right. Um, we're right next to Canada Place, so you're fine. There's a long backstory to that, which you, the listeners, will have to look up on your own. Um, but on, you know, they they beat the Swiss with a great goal from Jose Belanger. But people were starting to wonder, well, when are they going to score more than one goal in a game? And some of the same questions as I talked about on episode four were being asked of Canada as being, were being asked of the U.S. Do they have that next level that they could go to? I think we saw against England that especially on the mental side, they didn't quite have it. And we saw it especially, and I hate to put this all on Melissa Tancredi because it's not entirely fair. Ten minutes in... Christine Sinclair sets her up with that incredible ball. Tancredi has the open look. She missed it. All of us, whether Americans or Canadians, knew right then that was a big news. Bang, a minute later, England goes down the field and scores. Three minutes later, they score again. I hate to say it. I just don't think Canada was ready for the big occasion. I think you're absolutely right, Jonathan. I think the way it happened, too, on the first goal with the mistake by Cecilman, that cost a goal and then floodgates opened for a couple minutes another goal went in already down to nothing and the chance they had they root that chance but it's really um, almost a metaphor for their tournament and where they stand in the actual picking order right now uh, the fact that a player that hasn't played in almost 18 months is needed to almost start and to be a almost a big important piece for that team it, it's very telling on where that program is and the depth of that program and I think that's where it actually unfolded for them the fact that they were not, had not enough depth at the Madison injury Cecilman coming back from injury who knows Sinclair injury maybe in the next coming few days I think they did not have the depth and the tools and the weapons if you like to use this analogy to score more goals if you look at the whole tournament there was three goals in a run of play Penalties were needed in the first victory against China in the group stage. And even in the in the round of 18th, the uh, round of 16th, I mean the 8th finals, they squeezed by with that goal. If it wasn't for that great moment and that shot, that instinct shot by Jose Belanger, they would not have made it to the quarterfinals to face England. And they almost got lucky against England. They could have been a Germany, could have been a France, could have been a team that 
could have destroyed them 8-1. to one. The fact that they lost 2-1, it gives Canada and the people who follow the program the fact that, oh, they were so close. But in reality, they were never really close to a semifinal, if not even closer quarter. You said instinct, and I think that's a key word in a lot of ways because we saw with the Netherlands against Japan, with France against Germany, and with Canada against England, all three of those games, early chances for the quote-unquote, well, I don't know whether Canada was the underdog, but the team that ended up losing, certainly. Early chances missed. Other team capitalizes. I look at that. There's a lot of teams, as we've seen now, and it's a great compliment to women's soccer, but the game has grown Cameroon, Netherlands, Colombia, all of these teams that have the skill now. The next step for them, and we're seeing for Canada, the next step is mental. No, absolutely. And when you mentioned instinct, Canada tried a different approach with this tournament, a more possession type of soccer. They tried to implement the last two years getting ready with John Urban, the residency program in Vancouver. They tried to use that to get ready for this game, more possession type of uh, soccer. But like you say, when it gets down to the dirty and then then in gritty, instinct comes back and they just try to boot the ball to St. Clair. And you saw that happening in the biggest moment of the games and maybe that cost them. I don't know if it was the right strategy in the tournament. It's easy to say after the fact that it got booted out that it wasn't the right uh, approach. Uh, but I think it's something we should uh, think about. Uh, what type of soccer do we need uh, for the next future generation development? What should they try to go forward with? Pierre, when it comes to expectations for this Canadian program, coming into the tournament... There was the big spotlight and all the hype and all the stuff like that. But the people, including all of us around this table, who've watched this team closely, knew whatever whatever team they were going to play in the knockout rounds, knew that the quarterfinal was the right expectation. And for a long time, John Herdman had the discipline of his message, and he managed the expectations, and he did it pretty well. And I thought after they beat Switzerland... All of a sudden, it started to slip a little bit, and what we in the States call the hype train got going, and so on and so forth. And I think we have to step back and remind people this was about where Canada was supposed to be. I totally agree. And I think that the reason why the people were expecting the team to go further was that they were hoping for a dream, a little bit like what happened in London. They were hoping that we could get to third place or fourth place but in the end we got the team and the results that was expected by most of the fans that follow the Canadian women's team so Phil there is reason for optimism going forward and I think that John Herdman now because they didn't make it to the semifinals or the final or third place game or whatever John Herdman going into the Olympics next year has a little bit of leeway to usher out some of the old guard and give the keys to the car to some of these younger players who we've seen emerge at this tournament, Katisha Buchanan, Ashley Lawrence, Jesse Fleming. It's a long-term development thing, and I know that's a loaded phrase in this country in a lot of ways, as it is in the U.S. too. But we are starting to see in some of those younger players that they really get the opportunity now. Canada's got some bright future ahead and you have to hope that all of these people some of whom obviously you've worked with over the years because you've been part of the Canadian media sphere for a while that they don't just walk away and turn their attention back to hockey and the CFL because there's reason to be optimistic yeah I mean and just look at the younger generation I have a daughter who's 11 
and she was so crushed to see the Canadian national team being ousted of the tournament. We didn't see 11-year-old girls being crushed by the Canadian team, ousted in 99 at the World Cup or even in 2003 when they finished fourth. Um, I think that the, the tournament in London maybe raised the expectations very high and made people dream about great things. And I think Canada can, again, aspire to be one of the top teams in the world. I think they, they should continue to think like this. I mean, I remember I was at the World Cup in 99, and the, the, the retiring crew wasn't really replaced immediately by the level of talent we have now by the upcoming crew. Like mentioned Buchanan, mentioned Ashley Lawrence. Uh, there's a bunch of people coming up the ranks. Jesse Fleming, 17-year-old with the team right now. She was captain of our U17 team. There's all kinds of people coming up that we will see because that's interesting too, Jonathan, is that at the Pan Am Games coming in Toronto, the Canadian women's team will be made up pretty much of the, that younger next generation crew. And that's, that's really thought of because we want to prepare for Rio and have a, a deeper squad. We didn't have that in the past. So there's lots of... And there's this thing called the Canadian XL program also that was set up that we didn't have in the past. So... There's a lot of hope for the future for the Canadian national team. Now, the thing is, everybody's improving. I mean, you saw back in Germany in 2011, we saw France coming up the ranks and England. And, now, and you see how the women's Bundesliga and the women's French League and the women's Champions League in Europe has really groomed players to a higher level. I mean, the Netherlands have been, have been holding teams to... A, Uh, forcing teams to be very honest on the field. I mean, we didn't speak about uh, the Netherlands before in women's soccer. Italy is not here; is a pretty is an okay team and could do good. I mean, Scotland's not here and and is a team that do that does good in Europe. So, I think European soccer will just keep on growing. And South America, well, they're a bit slow, but I mean, you saw what Colombia did this time. I mean, there's a lot of things going on. So, there's future for Canada, but we need to continue to be serious about our future and I think the CSA is pretty serious about the XL program and, and I think that Rio will be a good measure of it was this a fluke was London a fluke or are we going in the right direction well, a lot of what you said about player development is is being talked about in the United States too in terms of skill development and things like that and I think Tuesday night is going to tell us a whole lot about what direction the US Soccer Federation is going in next But in terms, in talking about Canada's future, Kevin, I want to close the conversation with Canada with this. I believe, and I've said this to a lot of other people up here, and I've been surprised to hear that a lot of them agree with it, to take that next step, especially on the, not just the skills development side and the mental side. I know that a lot of people up here don't like Sidney LaRue and Abby Wambach, but I think to get to that next level, You need a little bit of what they have, the intangibles that they have, the spirit, the mentality, the strength, the determination, the I don't care what you think of me this. You need a little more of that. And if that means that you're going to annoy some people, piss some people off, to put it one way, you're going to make some enemies, you're going to kiss the badge when you're playing in Toronto or whatever, you know, they need a little bit of that. And if Sidney LaRue was playing for Canada... She'd be a superstar. And I, I, I just think they need a little more of character like that as well as everything else. 
Why do you think it hurts so much? Senora Rusan is playing for the States. It's the exact reason. It's not just that she's playing for the States. It's that I think deep down the Canadians know the very nice, we, look, the reputation, and they admit this with the soccer team. Yeah. Good, nice people, honest, hardworking, but you need a little more ego to get that next level. Let's put it this way. To achieve what those people really want to achieve, to be a player at that level, you need to be focused entirely on that goal. And if that means you're not nice to people, well, that's what it takes. That's the sacrifice it needs to, to become a player to that level. That's why it hurts so much that Sinan is playing for the state is because she had that intangible to maybe bring the whole program in a different direction that it's actually going right now, which I don't think it's the case when you look at the players that Canada actually have. If you want to compare, LaRue is Canadian playing for the United States. Cecilman is American playing for the Canadian, but... She would not have been a starter for the United States. She was not at that level, which that explains her decision where Sinidal Rue felt more the program is more of her direction, her closer to what she thinks about the game and how she likes to approach it. That's why she's there. And she felt slighted for the problem in Canada for some reason, which we're still trying to explain why. But that's why it hurts so much. We needed that type of grit, but the more that type of, I don't like that word, uh, swagger, more confidence, more uh, maybe a belief of yourself that may be too high, but you need that to achieve a higher level on the pitch, that confidence, that determination. I think that's why it hurts that Senator Roos playing for the United States. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the two Canadian players that have the most of that now are Diana Matheson and Christine Sinclair. Coincidentally, I mean, obviously they're getting old now, but they've been their two best players. They're two signature players, and they have that. Well, yes, you, you need to be solely focused on that goal, and that means that you breathe, drink, eat only soccer. And that doesn't make for a nice girlfriend, for a nice friend, or for a nice family member, but it makes for a heck of a great soccer player. And that's what we need right now. So we move to the semifinals, and we begin here in Montreal, Tuesday night at the Big O, the game that everybody in the United States is talking about, everybody in Germany is talking about. We've all seen the American fans are here by the tens of thousands, probably going to be at least 50,000 people in Olympic Stadium. It's going to be rocking. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's the United States and Germany, the top two teams in the world. Uh, tens of millions of television viewers around the world. Everything set up for a big occasion. I'm excited. I've been following this U.S. team around this whole time, and the, the stakes are clear. What they have to do is clear. The scale of the challenge that Germany presents is clear. Kevin, you've watched this U.S. team, too, a lot. Do they have what it takes to beat Germany? Well, of what I've seen from this team in that tournament, they haven't played at their potential at all. They haven't played at the what their actual game is. They have survived games and able to get results, squeeze out results. But against a team like Germany that has a confidence of beating maybe the, everybody's favorite team, France, that everybody had a pick as their favorite for the tournament, with Japan, but France was really the, the hipster's favorite team. And with Germany beating them, yeah, it was a, a late goal and everything. But still, Germany has that confidence now against the United States. And they have no uh, no conflict. They had no at all some... They really want to beat the United States to prove something. Because when you beat the States on the women's side, it's still a pretty big uh, achievement. When you beat them, it's still a, a trophy that you can put in your trophy case. We beat the States, one of the teams that has been most... Good results. Yeah, they haven't won the World Cup in a while, but have done great on other levels. And I think that if they can get that result, Germany would go to another level, maybe get the more press that it deserves because it's one of the best teams in the entire world. I'll tell you what. 
I, I've talked in the last couple of days with Ariane Hinks, who's a former German player, a Fox analyst, about this. People saw I wrote about it um, on Monday in the Inquirer about how every time Germany and the United States have played in a Women's World Cup, the winner of that game has gone on to win the whole tournament. 1991, the USA. 1999, where the USA had to come from behind at halftime. That was the day that Germany first announced that they were coming. And then four years later in Portland, Germany beat them three to nothing, and they started. They won back-to-back titles from there. And that was when they really arrived. And now, the United States comes in as the underdog. And the reason, Phil, why they come in as the underdog. You've seen Germany a bunch of times in person now in Montreal and Ottawa. Celia Sasic, Anja Mitzig, top two scorers in this World Cup, and they have a brilliant coach in Sylvia Knight. Yeah. And you feel the unity of that club, uh, that, that, that team, that selection, not a club, a selection. Speaking like a true hockey guy. <laughs> <laughs> we, are, we are, after all, recording this show in La Cajo Sport at the Bell Center. So it's hard to avoid the influence. Yeah. And, um, and, and you, you feel also the influence of uh, veteran Nadine Angerer on that team. How she held it also in a penalty shootout against, uh, uh, against France. I mean, this, this German team is on a mission. Uh, whether or not they're playing the U.S., they are on a mission to, to go all the way. And... Um, I think that it's going to be very interesting to see how the fi- first 15 minutes go. I know it's a proverbial, always the same thing. First 15 minutes of a soccer game tells a lot, but honestly, it, it really applies in this game. And 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 honestly, Sylvia Nade takes so much uh, <laughs> of the spotlight for herself. She's loving it, though. You know she is. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She misses uh, the fact that she's not a star player anymore. But, but, but again, I mean, it serves that team very well. And, and the German team is, is really showing, once again, that the Dutch are doing great things in terms of development, both on the men and the women's side. And the women's Dutch, you know, uh, league also is producing great products. Pierre, people in the U.S. who follow soccer, or even if they followed baseball and watched the Expos back in the day, Yes, the Big O is getting old, but a lot of people know that it's a special place, and it's really a special place when there's a big crowd inside it. There will be on Tuesday night, and I know how many people in Washington, in Philadelphia, in New York, in Boston, they had June 30th circled as soon as the draw came out. Everybody's wanted to come to Montreal. They are here. They're borrowing your house on Tuesday night, but it's going to be electric in there. Yes, it will. And it will probably feel like a home game for the U.S. team because there's not a lot of German people in Montreal. <laughs> But if it had been France, it would have been rocking because we would have the Bleu Blanc Rouge against the White, Red and Blue. And then that Olympic Stadium would have been like a... Power keg. Power yeah. keg, yeah. That would have been crazy. Kevin, we moved to England and Japan. Um... Japan, clearly the favorite. They've been playing some remarkably stylish soccer, some of the best we've ever seen at a Women's World Cup. It's an old English phrase to say that they have a puncher's chance, England do, of pulling off an upset. But I, the, my biggest question about Japan coming to the knockout rounds, and especially in that game against Australia, 
which has the mental strength that the Netherlands didn't, was what happened if somebody scored against them first. We have the answer to that question now because Japan has scored a couple of second-half goals. They've shown the resilience that they've got. And Phil talked about Germany being on a mission. Japan sure looks like they're on a mission too. I think they want to do the famous back-to-back. I think they want to raise the level of their sports in their own country. They're, they're looked at one of the best teams in the world, and still they're trying. It's hard for them to get headlines in Japan. If you're looking at England as well, England captured the imagination for once, at least, from England. The reports I had from England from today, the last couple of days, a lot of people are talking about what their performance in the World Cup, and they're talking about maybe we'll get an England team in a final of a World Cup for the first time in a long time, and who knows, maybe they have a chance of winning it. So there's, I'm torn between the two because the two stories are so great to talk about. England, a country of the birth of the beautiful game, and you have Japan, a new country, a country that used tactics and techniques and techniques to achieve uh, good results against teams that are bigger, stronger, faster than them, but they use their skills to get the result. And it's such a romantic game. Styles makes fight, as I say, the same uh, boxing... Uh, Uh, illusion as you make I think it's going to be a great game and I think uh, at the end of the day skills is going to go over strength and uh, Japan is going to prevail and make it maybe a Japan-Germany final I wouldn't be surprised and it gives us the United States and England on July 4th only problem is I have to go back to Edmonton if that happens if I may add about Japan it's, it's funny how when you look at that team how inspiring they are and how they play a different brand also of football And it'll be interesting to see if they win it this time around, if they go all the way and win the cup. If people around the world will start to look at what makes Japan soccer so successful, and they could have the influence on the next cycle like Brazil had on soccer or Barcelona had on soccer. It's such... Um, I mean, the way they play is so clean... And it's so amazing. I mean, and I think you'd had to be foolish if they win it not to try to copy what they're doing. I think that's right. I will say, though, you talked about not being sure who you wanted to win. I know all the Americans here and back home. They want England to win because they want to win the whole tournament. They, they don't want to play Japan again. Um, Phil, when it comes to talking about England, I'm going to draw on your experience writing for world soccer. I confess I've been a subscriber to the magazine for many, many years. And I've seen on a few occasions, especially around the time of Women's World Cups, as, this, as the women's game has grown, they get letters to the editor and stuff like that saying, when are you going to write about women's soccer? And their stance has always been, it's not really our place. There should be a separate magazine for women's game. I understand that logic. But at the same time, I think it is a symbol of the fight that women's soccer has had within the English culture, because World of Soccer is, comes out of the English culture, primarily they've had an enormous fight over the years to gain respect, legitimacy in a country where it's, as I, I wrote this a couple days ago, soccer is as macho in England as the NFL is in the United States. It's finally changing. They're finally breaking through. And whether they make the final or, or get third place or whatever, when you start seeing headlines in the English papers about how it's the first time any English men's or women's team has made a semifinal of any World Cup since 1990, you see they're on the front page of the Times of London and the Guardian and so forth. You have to be happy for them that finally this breakthrough has come. Yeah, I think, I think I, <laughs> I'm thinking about Gavin Hamilton, the, uh, the editor-in-chief of World Soccer, and, and we had the discussion because I was pitching stories 
I tried once <laughs> to pitch stories about the women's game in Canada, which is bigger uh, to a certain extent than the men's game. Uh, and I understand his point of view because apart from the big events, uh, the women's game is not there yet compared to the men's leagues and the, and the men's tournaments. But that said, I think that, I mean, <laughs> let's not forget that England is led by a lady. And at every, before every game, whether men or women, they ask God to save her. So let's not forget about that, <laughs> gentlemen, when we talk about, <laughs> when we talk about England. But, but I think that it's just a sign of times. If, if the progression continues, I mean, I, I, I keep on thinking because the, the last World Cup I was on site was 99. And now, 16 years later, it's so different. I mean, uh, okay, we talk about low crowds in certain games, but I mean, in 99, there were low crowds, way lower than what it is now in certain games also that didn't have the headline teams. So that said, I mean, if the game continues to progress, we might see, maybe not in a magazine format because things are changing, but I mean, there's already some very solid women's soccer websites pushing up. And here's what else will help in England. It has to help. Arsenal, Chelsea, Manchester City, Liverpool investing money in their women's teams. Obviously, Arsenal has for a long time. Lucy Bronze, who scored the big goal for England uh, against Norway, plays for Manchester City. There's some real social currency in that. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think they're going in the right direction. And, and we'll see when <laughs> we see an English team uh, winning a women's <laughs> Champions League. I mean, it's going to open eyes even more. But I think more and more as we progress through the Olympics, through the Women's World Cup, I think many eyes are open of the younger generation. And that generation will become the deciders of the future. So I think it's just a matter of time. Uh, and sometimes when you're in close to the game, you're saying it's not going fast enough. But guys, we got to realize this sports has grew tons across North America and in Europe especially women's soccer, but even men's soccer in North America has grew immensely. And we're so close to the elephant that we don't see it. But when you back up, like I've been doing in the last year and a half and two years, I mean, this sport has grew, guys and girls, <laughs> big time. And, and Kevin, you and I in our many conversations over time with Dwayne Rollins, every time I've been on your show, uh, Two Solitudes, we've tried to step back and see the bigger picture, see the money that's coming into the game, see the resources from sponsors and things like that that are coming in. I think Phil's absolutely right in a lot of ways. No, absolutely. And I think, too, it's the first Women's World Cup in the social media age. Yes, in 2011, it was present, but it wasn't as as everywhere as it is today. You see Twitter icons, Facebook icons everywhere nowadays. And I think because of that, women's soccer, well, if you want to take England's uh, example... They found their market. They found a way to uh, attract attention with the social media, with uh, the fact of getting directly to the fans, not having to wait for the BBC or somebody else to talk about it. They found a way to get to their fans, and they found a way to, for their fans to want more. And we see th this happen in the last couple of weeks in England. And I think it's important now. Too. It's, uh, this World Cup is the first World Cup with 24 teams. For a World Cup, the level of play is higher than anywhere, anytime in the world of women's soccer. And I think it's really a turning point for women's game, that World Cup. Uh, because of the changing in the guards and the best team in the world, social media age, all that together, I think it's really expressing uh, something the women's athlete really needed to do for a long time, and I think it's a catalyst to social media for uh, that sport right now. Well, 
as we move on to our next subject, you came very close to saying the most famous word in the Montreal Soccer Dictionary, and that word is buzz. Um, we had hoped tonight to be joined by another friend of ours, Sofian Benzaza of the Khan Football Club show on Chalk FM. And I get into debates with him, as I do with all three of you, all the time, about this great city of Montreal. Uh, it is a hotbed of soccer, and everybody knows it. It has a fan base of the impact, Pierre at the forefront, if I may say so, that loves its team and loves its game. But this is as much an event town as Los Angeles, California. And we saw early in this tournament, and it was remarked upon by folks in the States and here. I need only point to a guy that, Phil, you and I know very well, Mark Tugas of the Canadian Press, who's written repeatedly about the ticket sales and the buzz and all. The, the buzz is the word. Um, all that. It was disappointing early on. They turned out a big crowd for Canada. They turned out a pretty darn good crowd for France, Germany, for a 4 o'clock in the afternoon kickoff. I want the listeners to understand. I think a lot of them have seen Montreal from afar. Maybe some of them, as I've done many times before, have been on vacation here. They've gotten a taste of it. I want them to understand a little more about this city. And I'm just going to pass the microphone around to you guys, and, and we can take it wherever you want to go. Montreal is an event city, like you say. When you have everybody behind an event, you do gather the people. When radio, everybody's talking about it, you get some people. Uh, but I think soccer, or I was going to say soccer as a whole, women's soccer, but soccer as a whole is still niche in our country. It still needs um, a building a mainstream push. It still needs people to fight to get that Uh, that article to get that time, that radio time, that airtime, they're still fighting for it. But when you get an event like either the Champions League a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago in Montreal with the Impact versus Club America, or the Women's World Cup, or the U17 uh, World Cup a couple of years ago, you get events and you get the dude, the crowds to come out. You get the fans of teams involved. USA Germany fans will be present tomorrow night, and it's one of the great nights to experience. Maybe one of the best games of women's soccer ever played. That's the hype I'm putting on that game tomorrow. That's the hype I'm putting behind Germany and behind USA, the styles. that I think it's going to be a great night, and I think uh, I'm really excited for it. I think you can tell. I totally agree with what Kevin was saying. And you have to remember that tomorrow the world's ranking number one against number two. So that's probably the final before the final. Well, that's what we used to say for the game between France and Germany. But uh, you have to understand also that there hasn't been a lot of media coverage apart from the, the TV shows that were sh showing the games. But Montreal, like Kevin said, is an event town. So I hope that tomorrow there will be a lot of people, especially U.S. citizens, coming to the Big O and rocking the stadium. I'm going to get the old record out and uh, say what I've kept saying and kept writing for years in, in World Soccer magazine and in any places I had a mic in front of my face or a TV camera or speaking to Jason Davis on Soccer Morning. Hi, by the way. Um, yeah, I think that Montreal, I, and I still believe it, Montreal is, if not the soccer capital of North America, it's one of them. Uh, 1976 Olympic Games, record crowd, 
2007 U20 World Cup record crowd for games that you know people was like huh and people came up uh, when, uh, not the um, I was going to say that the the French Super Cup the Trophée des Champions came here a few years ago It was en avant Guingamp. People had no clue of which metro station you had to take to get there. Playing against Bordeaux, which is a team people know more about wine than, than the soccer team here in Montreal, at least. It was full. Uh, you had uh, uh, a CONCACAF Champions League game in 2009 in the middle of winter, right in the middle of hockey season. Full. People know their soccer. So people will show up at places where they feel respected and they feel that their knowledge of soccer is taken into account. I'm going to spare Phil any more grief talking about the media stuff because I don't want to get him in any hot water. And uh, Kevin, we're pausing in part because the guy who just walked right behind us who was sitting two tables over from us was Montreal Impact head coach Frank Clovis. And uh, a couple of his colleagues with the Impact. That was that was a pretty fun little coincidence. And no, we did not invite him on the show because I would have politely gone through their PR staff to, to deal with that. I didn't want to spring anything on him. But Kevin, one of the things that you and I were discussing before we came on air is the television coverage. And I want to get your perspective on that since I know you've watched English and French. I've remarked since I've been up here on TSN's coverage. Obviously, they've got good studio programming. They're fully staffing the Canada games and all that. But they're taking the world feed broadcast for everything else. Fox has their studio in Vancouver with six people. They've got five different broadcast crews that are all around the country. They said, and they said before the tournament, we're going to bet that this is going to be a big deal. And they were right. I think they knew they were going to be right because the U.S. team is such a major uh, thing. But it's also been the viewership of the non-U.S. games. A million people for Germany, Ivory Coast, you know, so on and so forth. I think that TSN could, should have done better. I have to agree with you, Jonathan. I think I have to to sum it up as missed opportunity. Yes, they did some good coverage for Canada. Yes, they're showing the games. They're talking about the games. But there's a missed opportunity. Uh, that young kid who's watching that game who wants maybe to know more about that um, the personal piece or that athlete from Cameroon that's doing good or that anything, I think it's a missed opportunity to spark people's imagination. I think that's what World Cup are there for. World Cup are there once every four years to spark people's imagination to, to, to turn around, to put them in the sports of soccer, to, to, to make the sports of soccer their favorite sports. And I think that's where they missed the chances. When you get the international broadcast and you just put the game on air, broadcast the game on air, see what, you, you do what you need to do, but you don't go the extra mile. You don't necessarily grab the attention. You don't necessarily spark the imagination of that fan so it comes back. And I think that's where uh, TSN and Unclude RDS and Mr. Boat where they could have grown the sport a little bigger by going further than just talking about Canada. They could have put it worldwide, even in the French feed, to maybe uh, put in a different perspective and make it feel as big as it actually is because that's not the feeling we get as watching those games right now. Pierre, I watched the Japan-Netherlands game on RDS for a couple of reasons. One, everybody knows I speak French, so it was easy enough. But two, because I knew 
but it was their own staff that was going to be calling the game instead of it being the world feed, and I thought they deserved the respect for that. I know you because you've tweeted about it a couple of times. You've watched some of the Fox feeds of the games instead of the the TSN games. For you as a fan, have you judged, as you as a Canadian fan even, how have you judged what Fox has done from what you've seen? I think Fox has done a pretty good job as delivering the games for the American public and maybe for to let them understand what the other countries are all about. But I have to take a stand for the people at RDS because, you know, they were presenting the Women's World Championship. At the same time, they also had the U-20s going on and they had the UFA 21 going on. It's like they have tons of soccer games to show in these days. And maybe they couldn't afford to have people go left and right across the country to present the game. So I know that. For sure, being there is different than being... uh, on TV, watching something on TV, for example, and it's the same for the commentators. You talked about soccer cities and Montreal being a great soccer city in, in North America, and maybe we'll close out with this. I've seen in my travels throughout this tournament, not only Montreal, but Vancouver also, are two of the best soccer cities in North America, and I think that this summer the American public has come to learn that even more. Yeah, Vancouver has a great tradition uh, with the Whitecaps as well, and they they've, they've did good grooming uh, the uh, the women's game as well. And uh, I'll be very excited to see uh, how Canada will approach uh, a future team in the uh, women's uh, league. And uh, I don't know if there's uh, room. <laughs> I don't know if there's room in the in the, in the uh, men's game for another Canadian team in the first division. I know there's many... You and I have argued about that a lot. I think we agree there's probably not, but... Well, there's aspirations in both Edmonton and Ottawa for that in the future uh, when when the league grows to 42,000 teams. But uh, I I don't see the U.S. market opening uh, other Canadian markets when there's so many Americans in line to to get, you know. TV markets now reality, but but yeah, going back to the question of, of Vancouver and Montreal, I think I think Toronto will always be a big market because there's a lot of people and a lot of money and the companies are there. But I think the heart of soccer lies in Montreal, and maybe its soul is in Vancouver now. I have to agree with what Philip is saying because you have to remember that Montreal and Vancouver were two teams in the NSL in the 80s, so you know. That's a pretty impressive that these teams are now in the MLS. And on the women's side, if I remember correctly, the Whitecaps had a women's team a few years ago. And uh, I know that people in Montreal, because of the tournament, discovered that there was a team in the W League in Laval City, the Comets. And uh, people will probably be starting to watch their, the Comets games, and especially since there's a Final Four coming up. And they're in first in the league right now, actually. Yeah. The Comet de Laval are actually first in the double league right now. And maybe, Kevin, and, and we'll close with this and we'll call it a night, maybe that's the legacy. Not so much in Vancouver and Montreal, which are the destination cities. But in places like, I mean, Edmonton has some soccer culture. But Winnipeg, when I was there, with all due respect, I know it's a wonderful hockey town. It's not a soccer town. But maybe now it and some other places become it a little more because they've had the spectacle of the World Cup be in this country. Hopefully it opens up Winnipeg, Moncton, 
and uh, maybe even Ottawa in a certain sort to a, a bigger stage for the world of soccer. Hopefully it does. If that's a legacy for the tournament, fine. I just hope that there's an actual legacy. That's what I'm wondering to myself right now. I actually have a feeling there's not going to be any legacy of that tournament, and that's really a missed, and again, I'm going to say that expression, but I think it's another missed opportunity. If there's no legacy, there's nothing that comes out of this tournament, uh, it's going to be really surprising. I got to say, legacy is hard to determine when the tournament is not over. We'll, we'll have to wait 10, 15 years to be good judges of that. I've got, I've got one, though, and it's something that you and I discussed pretty recently on the Two Solitudes podcast. I've heard that as the negotiations for this new Canadian men's league have been happening behind the scenes, somebody, maybe more than one somebody, told me that a lot of the potential investor operators were in Edmonton for the Canada-China game. I know it's not on the women's side, but I wonder if that might be the legacy ultimately. Well, if that's a legacy, I'm all for it. If we have a league of our own after that tournament, well, it would have been all worth it. And that's basically uh, probably the best-case scenario, and hopefully that's what happens. And there will be many, many more podcasts to come on that subject, I suspect. Gentlemen, thank you all. It's been a treat. For me, um, Kevin and Phil, having been on, on your shows many times, Pierre, it's always great to have you with us, um, as I said at the top. It wouldn't be a show like this if, if you weren't here. And um, we thank all of you for listening. We remind you that kickoff at Olympic Stadium in Montreal is at 7 o'clock on Tuesday night. The Big Fox over the air. Uh, NBC Universo also back in the state. Sirius XMFC 94. CTV and RDS, I believe, up here, if my memory is right. And I believe the TSN radio network is also going to be carrying the semifinals. And make sure to say hi to Jason Davis for me. Oh, believe me. I know he's listening because, as the listeners out there know, this podcast goes out on the Soccer Morning feed. And there will be a lot to talk about uh, on the show on Tuesday and on Wednesday. And from there, as of now, I'm flying to Vancouver on Wednesday morning. Who knows? We'll see. Um, I think some number of the Americans out there would rather spend their July 4th in Vancouver than Edmonton. That's just a guess on my part. I'd really better stop it there. We also going to jinx the thing. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Jonathan Tannenwald with Philly.com, Philadelphia Inquirer and Daily News. This has been Episode 5 of a Women's World Cup Home Companion on Backhill.com.